The Week in Art is brought to you in association with Christie's. Visit christie's.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello and welcome to The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week we're looking at museums in different parts of the globe. What's their future in a world changed by the coronavirus? The doors of museums have slammed shut over recent weeks as COVID-19 has locked down countries across the world. So this week we're asking key figures in museums in the UK, the US and China, what happens next? We speak to Francis Morris, the director of Tate Modern, to Dan Weiss, the president and chief executive officer of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and to Philip Tanari, the director of the UCCA Centre for Contemporary Art in Beijing, leaders within different museum cultures and with very different challenges ahead. We also have the latest in our Lonely Works series, in which Mark Wallinger, the artist, explores Jackson Pollock's autumn rhythm. Before we go any further, just a reminder that you can sign up for the Art Newspaper's free daily newsletter for all the latest stories. Go to theartnewspaper.com and the newsletter links at the top right of the page. And as I mentioned last week, we've launched a readership survey where we're asking for your views on everything we do, including the podcast. It's still active, so please visit survey.theartnewspaper.com and give us your feedback. Now, Tate Modern, along with its three sister galleries in London, Liverpool and St Ives, closed its doors in March as the UK moved into lockdown. The gallery's Andy Warhol exhibition was open for a matter of days, its Steve McQueen show was only open for four weeks, and a show of the South African photographer Zanelle Maholi, which was due to open in April, has already been postponed. It's the 20th anniversary of Tate Modern's opening this year, and there was due to be an extensive series of celebrations from the 11th of May, including a display of two of Yayoi Kusama's infinity rooms, which no doubt would have drawn vast numbers of people to the museum. So what now? I spoke to Frances Morris, the director of Tate Modern, to gauge her thoughts. Frances, I thought we'd begin by picking up on something that you said in an article in The Guardian uh, this week, which was, which was that, oddly, because the art world has shut down like everything else, you've had more time to talk. And it seems to me that this is significant. This, is, this can be, yes, it's a horrific period, but it can be a productive period, can't it? By, if, we can, if we can talk through how the art world can move on from this. Do you know, I think we were we were due for a pause. Um, I've had a, in the last two decades have been so incredibly intense, uh, both personally, but I think across the whole sector. And what happens with intensity is that you don't afford moments to reflect. And we do need reflection time. And this emergency has, you know, it has all sorts of hugely unfortunate consequences. But I think one massively valuable thing is it's just stopped us in our tracks and that once you stop in your tracks you do tend to look back and looking back will help us move forward and I think we need to think about the moment we're in and the implications of this pandemic but actually we need to begin to have a much longer sense of forward strategy. Indeed we'll come back to that but let's begin by talking about where we were when the Tate shut its doors. Obviously, at the start, you said the 1st of May, or the organisation said the 1st of May, that's been extended to the 1st of June. Is that still the aim, that you may open the doors again on the 1st of June, or do you think it will be extended again? Look, Ben, we have no idea, honestly. I mean, we wait clearly await a steer from government. Uh, we're looking with interest to see what's happening in different parts of the world uh, and different museum sectors. Uh, One thing for sure is that I think it's likely to take us much longer to open up than it did to close down because we have some uh, choices, we have some options and we need to think them through. We need to think very carefully about how we open. Uh, We need to think about the safety of our visitors, our reach. We need to think about the safety of the our stakeholders and the, the context. So um, it's helpful that we have some international comparators to look at. I know, I know that uh, today a number of German museums very tentatively opening their doors. Uh, so, the, you know, the discussions around that time frame will be seriously starting once we, once we have a steer from government about when there's a beginning of the unlocking. 
and at what point cultural institutions will be invited to open their doors. And, and can you liaise with your colleagues in German museums? Will you be talking to them and saying, well, how did this go and how did that go? What did you do about this? That sort of thing. Yes, I mean, those those conversations have already begun because, of course, there, uh, there, there are other institutions in um, other parts of the world that have uh, dealt with uh, lockdown differently. And some of those uh, protocols and, and um, systems that those museums are working with may or may not be useful to us because, of course, we're all very uniquely situated in our local Context, But of course, I've been talking, for example, with the museum in Singapore, I've been talking to Hong Kong, and getting very useful sense of not just of mechanisms for um, supporting uh, a return or, or opening up the institution, but the likelihood of the kind of psychology of the visitor, the psychology of the front of house staff. And I think one of the things we need to remember is that the visitors aren't just, museums aren't justified by the visitors. They're complex, deeply dedicated teams of people. And every single person involved in the exchange between the museum and the visitor will in some way have been shaped or reformed or impacted by this uh, pandemic. So... There's no normal visitor that's come back in. No single person will walk across our doors who won't come with a different mindset themselves. It's going to be very interesting. That's right. And again, in that Guardian article, you talked about this sense of a before and after. It does feel like that, doesn't it? I mean, it's not quite reset, but there's a there's a sense of something of a reset button being pushed. Yeah, I mean, it's a sort of enforced, as I said, an enforced moment of reflection. And there's also huge opportunity when you do reset to reset things slightly differently. And um, certainly at, at Tate, uh, for museums, we've been uh, hugely successful in, in a way, evolving a kind of 21st century persona. But I think we're all really keen to have an opportunity to think, well, OK, so we've got to this point. What would we want to do now differently? What would we want to retain? What would we want to build on? Where do we want to re-emphasize? Um, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a really useful time. I was actually very moved. I'll, for you know, full disclosure, I used to work at the Tate. I worked there for many years before I became a journalist. And uh, I know when I was there what the vision for Tate Modern was. And that vision, I thought, was utterly clearly accomplished when I visited one of the Uniqlo Tate late nights because the vision for Tate Modern was that it would attract a very diverse audience, a much younger audience and huge numbers of these people. And and when I was there, I was, I was, I was acutely aware that Tate had achieved what it set out to do 20 years ago this year, you know, but, but also thinking about that now, you know, so much of that was about, about close knit people all together in on mass about, um, large numbers of people about performances which involved um, t- uh, uh, close physical connection with the audience, all these sort of things. These are the kind of things that are going to have to be rethought, but there's such a crucial thing about what makes Tate Modern so dynamic, aren't they? Yes, they are. And they're things I think we feel uh, rightly proud of. But one of the things that I've found interesting, almost revelatory uh, since we locked down, is that I've actually been able to have... Um, the kind of intimate contact conversations with people who are close to Tate via Zoom that are just as real, if not more close than the kind of conversations that I have in a public space. So to give you an example, we have a really wonderful group of Tate neighbours and they're a group of people who live very, very close to Tate, physical proximity, who worked together with Tanya Bergera. Uh, on her turbine hall project a couple of years ago. And um, they include Natalie Bell, who's an extraordinary you know, social worker in the, in the neighbourhood. And you've named a building and after. And we've you've named, named a, a part building, of the building after, after. Which symbolises the importance of community and neighbourliness to Tate. And that group, it's a small group, but it's proving extremely resilient. And the kind of conversations that we've been having live but by Zoom, actually take each of us into each other's homes. So there's a closeness there that we never get when we meet in the kind of civic space of the museum. So there are some interesting things that are happening. And I think those conversations are, you know, they kind of build um, 
a support system. And I hope that that will, that will steer us going forward. And I think also, I mean, it's interesting, we're talking on Earth Day, actually. This can be a catalyst for the international museum community to really start to put their money where their mouth is in terms of the climate, can't it? Yes, I mean, I absolutely. I think um, uh, as a sector, we've been sleepwalking too long. Uh, what is brilliant about this awful, tragic time is that uh, we're all listening to science. Scientists are telling us what to do. We should have been listening to scientists for a very long time. So there's absolutely no excuse not to hear what scientists are telling us about longer term prospects for the world. Of course, you know, Tate, like obviously many organisations already has a long standing commitment to sustainability in terms of our buildings and programmes and many colleagues have really dedicated a great deal of time and energy to uh, putting our house in order. But the lockdown has also brought its revelations, not just to us, but across the sector. You know, one small example, I used to travel a great deal of my time and always thought the face-to-face encounter in the space, in the location was absolutely crucial to the negotiation of contracts to sharing, you know, evolving shows together. But how amazing it is to have these focused, clear, effective and enjoyable conversations without the fog of jet lag. (laughs) That's very interesting. I've been to Sydney. I've been to Hong Kong. I was in New York yesterday twice. I'm back in New York this afternoon. And all of it for the price of a Zoom call. Yeah, I mean, I think this this obviously connects to this idea of blockbuster exhibitions. And it's very interesting that, that in a letter um, that was on Artnet by um, Manuel Borja Villel, who's the director of the Reina Sofia Museum in Madrid, and in again in this Guardian article, there is this idea that there must be a shift in blockbuster culture. And blockbuster culture is, is one of the most obvious, conspicuous ways in which museums are massively contributing to a, to a sort of carbon footprint for the art industry. They are essential money-making events for museums as well. So how can blockbuster culture shift, as it were? Well, okay, first of all, confession time, I love blockbusters. You know, they are hugely significant for bringing us extraordinary works of art from, you know, unique opportunities to see deep, real content. And I think for us, they're also really important. For most museums, what we would call trust builders, they bring transformative experiences to generations and particularly they are the exhibition that reach hard to reach audiences because they come with high profile big marketing budgets and they're talking points so in themselves they you know can be wonderful things but I think what is so often the case with very successful tried and tested formats is that the danger is that they crowd out the other things that are also hugely important and valuable or that are simply alternative emerging of minority interests. And all those other things, the alternative, the minority interest, the the emergent, emerging, are actually things we need to drive the future. The, the whole ecosystem will collapse if we don't bring on new perspectives, if we don't nurture younger artists, if we don't, as Tate Modern has done, shed a spotlight on artists who have fallen outside the canon, who who haven't been subject to lost busters. So I think that that you know, we mustn't be complacent here. Of course, blockbusters are absolutely central to the economy of the museum, um, but they are difficult to realise. They are expensive, and the in the end, they're less sustainable. So I you know think there is a complex piece of work that all museums must do, and we must do it together. Because this can't be about a competition. Um, there is, a, there is of, course, of course, competition for audiences and ticket sales that drives blockbusters. But we must work together to really think about how do we right, revitalise the amazing resources that we already have that are in public ownership and that we also do pay put a great deal of investment in, both in terms of building our collections and the research around them. And so I think there is an there is an amazing opportunity now to 
recalibrate, to think about how do we bring the creativity and innovation that we brought to our exhibitions, how do we bring that and use that in relation to our permanent collections and our public programmes? And how do we then bring them to the fore of a really hungry and interested public? That's a sort of, that's a, 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 a question that the museum community has been asking for so long though isn't it i mean it's it's something it when i was at the tate it was how can we do more how can we bring more people in to the extraordinary resources that we have on the walls every day of the week rather than just for say a warhol retrospective and i think it's it's some people do really interesting things in this in this direction. The Tate is an example. Other museums across the UK are too. But it, it's somewhat elusive, this idea of trying to, I suppose, if in an event culture and a culture driven by happenings, uh, how do you how do you create happenings around something which is just there seven days a week, 24 hours a day? Well, there absolutely, there's absolutely no reason why we can't adapt some of the sort of essentially marketing strategies and bring them to bear in relation to collection hangs. And of course, you're absolutely right that um, we have done quite well in that respect at Tate Modern. And I think I say with some conviction that when we opened Tate Modern, um, we offered a hugely challenging and very unconventional way of presenting the collection. And it was extremely well received, controversial, um, enticing, provocative. People wanted to come and see it. And you know, people, we have very short memories. But we, when you look at what we've done in the past, and what I think what Birmingham museums have done recently, what Manchester has done, they're amazing examples at other museums, both in this country and abroad. We have a really strong, uh, rich toolkit that we can draw from in relation to our past. But also we have a brand new toolkit now. We have incredible new digital technologies. We have new ideas around slow looking, around participation, about different voices. And so let's just get creative. You know, we're not outside what we call the creative industries. We have this incredible talent pool uh, at Tate and among our networks. And I, you know, do feel quite actually very excited about, about doing that. I think one of the things, one of the examples that Tate Modern had when it first opened was that in drawing these enormous audiences, suddenly you had new anchors, uh, as you call them, the, these new works which suddenly became pivotal in your collection and which the public needed to see. For instance, Cornelia Parker's Exploding Shed, you know, this this work, Cold Dark Matter of this Exploding Shed, you know, that, that suddenly became an icon of the Tate collection. And I suppose... That's what you've got to do, isn't it? Sort of animate these works, which may may not yet be loom large in the public imagination, but have the opportunity to do so if you if you present it imaginatively. Absolutely right. All collections have things that they overlook, and I think one of the you know one of the things we need to get better at is looking at our collection with you know outside eyes. Maybe we should we should be we should be doing that with with people who do come from outside the institution take the temperature and one of the projects i was really excited about that we have had to put on hold was the presentation of these two fantastic kusama mirror rooms that we had in the collection now when i think about you know kusama's uh, history from when we made her retrospective it less than 10 years ago you know, it seems astonishing that at that stage, we thought a medium scale show, you know, it would be sort of a moderate to high interest amongst our visitors. And the, the, the accumulation of interest around Kusama in that decade has been absolutely astonishing. And to have these works in the collection, they are a gift. Every bit as, uh, as attractive, as, as inspiring as any blockbuster we could mount. So that's an example of the way that you use the collection. I was intrigued by something that you said about wanting to prioritise the, you know, the art of the future, as it were, and, but also how much that depends upon the bigger, more obvious shows. So, you know, is your ability to do shows like you were due to of Zanelli Moholy and Magdalena Avakanovitz this summer dependent upon also having done Warhol? In other words, did you need the money that, that Warhol would bring in in order to have a programme for, you know, shows which are obviously not not money makers? Well, our planning cycle is much more longer term and I don't, uh, I can't comment yet on the outcomes of the kind of the, the financial impact of this period. But what I can say is that um, we, when we closed, we closed with three exhibitions in situ 
uh, one halfway off the walls, and that uh, there are another six shows in the pipeline for the remainder of the year. And over the next uh, following year, I'm talking about sort of, you know, the period that we anticipate being disrupted for, there are another, uh, you know, uh, half a dozen at least shows planned and in final stages of preparation uh, in some respects. And all that programme sits in a uh, network of around 30 collaborating institutions. So each exhibition that happens at Tate will have been produced either in collaboration with partner museums in North America, Europe, in Latin America, or will be uh, an exhibition that we have originated that then will tour to other venues. So you can imagine that the complexity, it's a little bit like having created the most beautiful and tightly uh, a tightly made jigsaw puzzle and somebody scatters it all over the floor and you have to pick up each piece and and put it back together and some of those pieces will need a little bit of reshaping and the final picture will look slightly different but each piece is loved and each piece is a commitment and so the 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 thing that we will really be working on over the next few months is how do we ensure that we retain and support that program and I say that because so much of what will happen to us is outside our control because each of those partnership organizations is in its own journey with this pandemic in its own city or location and will be you know part of its own network of stakeholders and and government and funding so there's going to be a lot of zoom calls and a lot of uh, moving pieces around, um, you know, you can, you can call it the chess set, the jigsaw, whatever. But but uh, we've, we don't take on exhibitions lightly. You know, exhibitions go through momentous processes of discussion before they even get on the schedule. And we don't want any of that go to waste. But, of course, reshaping, reinventing, repositioning. Yeah, we we will find a way. But can you, for instance, say, like, the Warhol show, it was open for a matter of days. I was one of the lucky people who was able to see it. and But I also noticed there's this massive shop outside. You know, obviously, you, you know, it's a big draw for merchandise. People want their Warhol T-shirts and posters and everything else. It was due to go after the Tate to the Museum Ludwig in Cologne. But also, obviously, there are, as you say, this, there's this jigsaw. There's the Hirschhorn lending, exceptionally lending its Marilyn's lips painting. That network of conversations that needs to happen, it obviously will happen with museums at different stages of lockdown and opening. So can you say, for instance, whether the Warhol show will reopen at the Tate, even if, let's say, the lockdown lasts until into the summer and the autumn? I, can't, I just can't say. I mean, all I can tell you is that we will go on selling the T-shirts. <laughs> And there's a great, yeah, there's also, look at our website. There's a great, you can visit the show. There's actually brilliant um, walkthrough with, with the curatorial team. It's beautifully done. Um, it, you know, it's one, of the, it's one of the great tragedies. All museums, all of us have shows, you know, just, the, the, and we all would have loved to have seen those shows at other institutions, but all in exactly the same boat. And there's a tremendous sense of solidarity and collaboration. And um, one thing is absolutely for sure is that Warhol won't go away. So I can't give you any of those answers, but it's a really interesting bog to wade through. That's great. Francis, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you, Ben. You can see the online tour of the Andy Warhol show that Francis mentioned at tate.org.uk, where you'll also find a tour of Tate Britain's Aubrey Beardsley exhibition and various other online content. And you can read an extensive story on the challenges facing museums online at theartnewspaper.com, on our app for iOS, and in the next edition of The Art Newspaper, which is out next week. Now, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York led the way for US museums in closing its doors in March. And with no state funding, the Met faces quite different financial challenges to those of British museums. 
I spoke to Dan Weiss, the Met's President and Chief Executive, about the museum's immediate and long-term future. And note that we spoke before the Met announced on Wednesday the 22nd of April that it was laying off 81 staff members in its visitor services and retail departments as it braced for the budget deficit related to its shutdown. Dan, the Met led the way in announcing that it would shut down on the 12th of March. Lots of museums followed and in the following days the New York Times uh, reported that there would be a hundred million shortfall in the current and following fiscal year. Um, And also that the museum wouldn't open again until July the 1st. Can you tell us something about both those those, uh, points? the 100 million shortfall to begin with, and also why July the 1st? Well, as this crisis began to unfold for all of us, our first goal was to really figure out what the magnitude of this issue was going to be and how we best manage it in the first instance. We realized we had to close, and as soon as we realized we had to close, we also then turned our attention to figuring out when can we reopen, under what circumstances would we be able to reopen, And what are the financial implications of such a decision? So we put our team together to begin to assess what we think the issues are. And um, the $100 million really came out out of a series of modeling exercises we went through based on the presumption we would not reopen at least until July 1st. And we did that. I'll come to that in a moment as to why it was July 1st. But based on that decision, we looked at what our lost revenue would be what we thought the implications would be as we reopen in terms of global tourism and the number of visitors that we would have and all of those components. And they, as we put it all together, we realized the magnitude of this challenge is massive and that we thought the sooner we could identify that and articulate that, the better it would be for everyone. This is not the kind of crisis where we're better off keeping the issue quiet, trying not to upset people, but rather to face straight away what the challenge is, and begin to put plans together to address it. So the financial crisis, the financial magnitude came out of our assessment of what we thought the implications of closing and staying closed would be. The July 1st date was really based on what we were reading and understanding from public health experts primarily around the trajectory of the pandemic and particularly what the curve, when the curve would actually begin to descend, when we would begin to see that the environment is safe enough to allow people to come together again in social ways. And I think July 1st is optimistic at this point. We chose July 1st in the first instance because we thought that was a reasonable approximation of several months anyway of being closed. But at this point, it may be that it will be after July 1st. The question of the 100 million, inevitably when one hears that stratospheric figure one wonders what what it's going to affect. So if you haven't got $100 million that you, you hoped you would have, then how does that affect the museum? What, what, what suffers as a result? Can you say something about where you expect that impact to be felt? Yes. Well, the $100 million, or whatever the number turns out to be, and it could be a little bit larger than $100 million, once we really know more about when we can reopen and how the global economy is going to behave, But that number really came out of understanding the magnitude and duration of the financial distress we will be subject to navigating, which is no different from every other organization in the world, whether it's a nonprofit museum or a business. And so by the time we get through this crisis and we're back to some semblance of normal operations, we will no longer be generating any deficits. And that's probably 18 months from now, more or less that we would face that kind of of, uh, resolution. So the $100 million is from now until 18 months from now when we're balancing our budgets and we're moving along. And in order to accommodate that kind of a burden, we've looked at everything. We have reduced our overall programming budget, so we have cut back on the number of special exhibitions that we're doing and the number of other programmatic uh, events that we have. The Met has an enormously ambitious and very busy schedule each year. We do more than 38,000 events every year. So in order for us to address this budget shortfall, one piece of it is reducing programming. As a result of reducing programming, we're able to reallocate some of those dollars to core operations that allow the museum to carry on and address this deficit. And we're also looking at how we can reduce costs, just overall reduce costs in terms of of, um, 
the overall budget for the institution. And then finally, we're also looking at fundraising. We have friends and supporters who want the museum to obviously to get through this. So if there is, a, there is light at the end of the tunnel, at the end of the $100 million challenge, we are healthy and vibrant and successful, then navigating the $100 million is a temporary kind of a problem. And that's how we've thought of it, and that's what we're doing. I'd like to focus more on this programming issue. So obviously, if you're cutting back on program, one imagines that that would mainly be the big exhibition. So is, is, that, is that the case? Not entirely. Certainly, the, the major exhibitions are the, the greatest uh, generator of, of activity levels and absorber of costs. That's certainly true. But there are other things as well. We have conferences, lectures, live arts events, tours, all kinds of things that go on. And so as we look out into the fall, if, let us say, we were to reopen on July 1st, we would imagine, or whenever it would be, let's say it's September 1st, we, we expect that in the first few months of reopening, our activity levels will be significantly lower. A, because there will be social distancing requirements in place anyway, so that people who come to the museum will have to have the ability to be in isolated space, more or less. So we need fewer activities anyway. And so it's a lot of things. It's major exhibitions, but other things too. Because there's a sort of sense, there's an atmosphere around where museum directors, for instance, are questioning whether actually we need a sort of paradigm shift in the way that museums behave. You know, that that, that we may be, in fact, past the era of blockbuster museums. And obviously, you think about the implications in terms of air travel, all sorts of other implications that connect to the blockbuster exhibition. What's your sense? Because, because it seems to me that there's a there's a paradox at play in the sense that, yes, these are massive revenue generators. They're also expensive to put on, but they also, in, in terms of their logistics, they're the toughest things to pull off. So there's all sorts of balancing acts, it seems to me, that museums are going to need to strike in this new era that, we, that we'll enter into. I think there is generally wide agreement in the museum world that we are experiencing a paradigm shift. And in some ways that are not obvious to us quite yet, the world will never look quite the same when we reopen and we settle, settle into the new environment. And within that, I think there is the question about how much reduction there needs to be or is appropriate in programming, and particularly special exhibitions. One of the things I've observed, and I know I'm not alone, is that in times of stress like this, and when people are feeling scarcity and they're concerned about, uh, about core things... What the museum represents is very important to people, and it's not major special exhibitions. It's just the opportunity for people to come and to connect with our our permanent collection, to have a chance to be in this space. Digital is wonderful, and people are looking at our our programming digitally, but coming into the space and having direct encounters with art is something very, very important to people. So I think when we do reopen, they won't be clamoring for special exhibitions. They'll be looking for opportunities to have quiet, reflective time and space in the museum with works of art that are important to them. And I think all museums will be going back to those first principles much more than they have in the past. Over the fullness of time, whether it turns out that that remains to be the case, we'll see. Could be that there will be much less interest in special exhibitions of the sort we saw before. One of the things that is, I think, very intriguing about this is that special exhibitions and the balance of that sort of event culture with the kind of day-to-day collection, this extraordinary collection that you're talking about, is one of the things that museums are constantly battling to try to achieve the right balance in, in the sense that actually, certainly in the UK, and I know it's true in certain US museums, there's a sense that permanent collections are in some ways undervalued that that, that that museums actually could be doing very much more to reinforce the importance of their permanent collections do you think can you imagine that that is something that the Met will be doing well I do I, I think it requires us all to reflect on on why we why we value museums and what it is we're actually seeking and we have at least up until this moment we've lived increasingly in an environment that is da- dominated by a need for ever exciting stimulation, for something new and different and fresh and shiny. And what special exhibitions do is provide an event moment for people to come to the museum to see what's new and to get a sense for what the latest idea is, to have people have an opportunity for people to discuss whatever the issues of the day are around the exhibition. 
And I think we're all reflecting on whether that is necessary to the same degree we have seen before. My instinct is it is not. That I think the, the, what drives most people to want to go to art museums or any cultural institution is to have a direct engagement with the core collection or the core programming. And I think that's likely to be what will happen for us in the future. So there will be fewer exhibitions, there'll be, there'll be, uh, but there'll be plenty of interest in the museum. Going back to the finances, there's a, there's a 50 million emergency fund. Can you say more about what that is and, and how you're allocating it? Yes, we, we realized as we, we dimension the magnitude of the overall problem that it would be very important for us to try to create a fund that allowed us to meet the needs of the museum uh, on a day-to-day basis as the crisis unfolds and as new information becomes not available to us on a day-to-day basis. So the $50 million emergency fund, which is actually now larger than that, was uh, in, created in two ways. One, we reallocated resources within the museum's budgets that were going to be spent on programming or acquisitions or mission-related activity that we had, where we had the ability to reallocate those funds, we did, so that they could focus again on core responsibilities that we have financially. And second, we've raised money philanthropically from our, primarily our trustees. So again, the challenge we're solving for is a $100 million problem, and we thought that if we break that down into a series of component parts, about $50 million would be this, this reallocated emergency fund that comes out of our own resources and our own endowments where we can draw them appropriately and legally. $25 million is going to be co- coming from philanthropic support that we raise from our supporters and trustees. And then $25 million more we have to find ourselves by reducing our own costs and just doing things more efficiently and less expensively. And collectively, those three pieces come together and they allow us to work through this crisis. Can you tell us more about the endowment? Because obviously it's subject to fluctuations in terms of the market. Um, What is the current figure for the endowment? And to what extent you mentioned that where where appropriately and legally you can draw down from endowments, you have done so. Can you say more about that? Our endowment was before this crisis was about $3.6 billion dollars. And now it's probably $3.3 billion, something like that. It's a very large number, and we're enormously fortunate to have access to that kind of resource. By statute, we are allowed to spend about 5% of that a year. That's normally how endowments are spent. And for us, about half of that, more than half of it, is actually already restricted to various kinds of programmatic areas or acquisitions. So we cannot use that money for any other purpose other than what it's specified for in the gift agreement from the donor. The other money is more available to us to be used in different ways. And we already use a significant portion of our endowment to meet our operating expenses. So when I say we're using all of our endowment as that we can to meet our expenses, what we're really doing is making sure that all of the money that comes to us each year through the 5% draw is being used for the most mission-critical activities that we have. There is not, at this point, or likely in the foreseeable future, a plan to invade the corpus of the endowment and spend it down. That isn't something museums do. It is, uh, it is extraordinarily destructive to the future of the institution, and um, the Met did not do that in the Great Depression. It did not do that in 2008. We are not legally able to do that. But we are going to use the money we have available to us as thoughtfully and strategically as we can. The full extent of this crisis, obviously, we don't know yet. And we don't know how long it's going to go on for. And obviously, this makes it very difficult to uh, predict how people will behave into the future. But for instance, are you still involved in emergency planning, for instance, for when those doors do reopen and how you will ease the museum back to life, as it were? We have done a lot of planning already in thinking through very carefully what the museum can do for the public when we're allowed to reopen, what our operating environment will be, how do we keep it safe and secure for our staff who have to interact with the public, who have various kinds of uh, risks associated with moving around in an environment uh, where there's a public health risk. That planning has already begun, even though we don't yet know what the environment will be exactly. But we, we anticipate certain things, and we're preparing for them. There may be the requirement for timed entry in order that social distancing can be assured to the public when they come in the museum. We cannot have, I'm sure, 
vast numbers of the public crowded into galleries, engaging in a very close space to see works of art. So we're going to have to be navigating it very differently. We're doing that. We don't know yet what kind of screening would be required at the door of our museum. But we know in Asia, various museums that have reopened, are you, are they doing temperature screening? They're requiring visitors to wear masks. There are various steps like that that we may be asked or required to do when we reopen. So we're looking at that. We're looking at how people purchase tickets to make sure that's as safe and, and secure a way as possible to do that. So all of that planning is underway. Whether we open on July 1st or September 1st, we don't believe we're going to open up like we used to. We're going to have to be, in the in the age of the of post-pandemic period, we're going to be obviously working under great restrictions. It's really important to us to get the museum open as soon as we can in a safe way. No one wants to come to an art museum and have a cultural experience worried about their health. But people really want to come. They want to see the art. They want to have the experience that's so important to them spiritually and intellectually. Our job is to find that balance between providing access that is not intrusive or threatening, but that is safe and secure. And we've been working on that quite hard. The Met, as I said right at the top of the conversation, it led the way in terms of shutting the doors. It is, in a way, an exemplar of a museum for the whole of the museum community. Do you feel a sort of responsibility to lead at this moment in terms of the entire museum community? And also, can you address whether this is a sort of um, paradigm shift in terms of just the, the entire model of the way that museums are run in the US? Because this is such a, an, an enormous moment, such a momentous time. Can you predict that there might be a shift in the fundamental business model of museums? And can you lead in that discussion? Yes, I think both are both are true. The Met has always been a leading institution by virtue of our size, the magnitude of our collection, the number of visitors that we welcome. The Met has always been an important and influential cultural institution. So it is not surprising that we find ourselves in that role now. And it felt very clear to me as this crisis was unfolding and to my colleagues at the Met that we needed to make a decision, whatever we decided to do, that would withstand careful scrutiny and that would likely serve as a model for other institutions because that's how the matter has often operated. And I think we made the right decision by closing when we did. And many other museums were actually appreciative that we did that because it made it a little bit easier for them also to do that. And they knew they needed to do that. So I think the Met has led and will continue to lead. But we are also on a, in, on a regular basis in conversation with other museums and making sure that we're comparing best practices, we're learning from each other, a group of New York art museum leaders last week, for example, also had a conversation with several Asian art museum leaders who have already reopened their museums to talk about their experience and what they're learning. So ultimately, the Met needs to lead, but we need to be collaborative. And, and we will do both of those things to, as we move forward. I think we are heading into a very new operating environment for the next several years and maybe for forever in terms of how we engage the public what our budgets look like, how we generate revenues and manage costs, how we develop programming to service the public, what kind of expectations the public has of museums. I think all of those things are up in the air and for discussion, which also means it's an opportunity for us to bear down on our mission, to think more carefully about what is it that we do that's most important. And if we're not going to do everything, let's make sure we're doing what's most important and not necessarily those things that are less important. So a crisis like this always provides opportunities for reflection and learning, and uh, I think we're doing that. And as we enter into the new environment, my hope is we can be a more focused, sharper, more mission-driven institution than we were before, even if we have fewer resources to do the work. Well, Dan, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You can read the latest news about staff cuts at the Met at theartnewspaper.com. And you can explore the Met 360 Degrees project, allowing you to take a virtual tour of its various locations and galleries online at metmuseum.org. 
A bit later, we'll talk to Philip Tanari in Beijing, and we hear from the artist Mark Wallinger about Jackson Pollock's autumn rhythm. But first, here are a few of the top stories on our website. As mentioned briefly in the interviews, in Germany, museums have this week begun to reopen. Catherine Hickley reports that in Brandenburg, small rural museums have opened for the first time, with limits on visitor numbers and security precautions in place. It will take longer for bigger museums to follow suit, according to the German Museums Association. Only a few states have so far set a date from which museums may reopen, in Thuringia from 28th of April and in Berlin and Saxony from the 4th of May. The Dresden State Art Collections are planning to open gradually, also starting on the 4th of May. The photographer Peter Beard, the subject of numerous paintings by Francis Bacon and a friend of several artists, including Andy Warhol and Salvador Dali, has died aged 82, Gareth Harris writes. Beard was found dead on the 19th of April, almost three weeks after he disappeared from his home in Montauk on Long Island. He'd been suffering from dementia. His most famous photographs were his images of wildlife. A statement released by his family said that Beard was a pioneering contemporary artist who was decades ahead of his time in his efforts to sound the alarm about environmental damage. And lastly, Louisa Buck reports that Wolfgang Tillmans has this week launched a 2020 solidarity campaign, bringing together more than 40 international artists, including Luke Toymans, Andreas Gursky, Nicole Eisenman and Betty Tompkins, to design a poster that can then be offered as a reward on different fundraising sites, in return for a £50 or $50 donation. The aim is to support cultural and music venues, community projects, independent spaces and publications that are, as Tillmans puts it, existentially threatened by the current crisis. You can read all these stories and more at theartnewspaper.com or on the app. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is brought to you in association with Christie's. As collectors and art lovers increasingly look to browse and purchase online, Christie's has significantly expanded its online-only sale calendar. In April and May, Christie's will introduce two new themed online contemporary art sales. Andy Warhol, Better Days, with proceeds to benefit emergency relief efforts for artists in America, and then hand-picked, 100 works selected by the Saatchi Gallery. The refreshed online-only schedule complements Christie's private sales offerings. Bid and buy art at any time and from anywhere. Find out more on christies.com. Welcome back. Now, in the next issue of the art newspaper is an opinion piece from Philip Tinari, the director of the UCCA Centre for Contemporary Art in Beijing, entitled Greetings from a Museum Leaving Lockdown. The centre hopes to open its doors in earnest next month and has quickly put together a new exhibition, Meditations on an Emergency, to replace shows that it's been forced to postpone because of the pandemic. Philip is in Beijing preparing for the reopening and I spoke to him about the museum's plans. So, Philip, in the piece you say... It's been a time to think. Can you tell me something about what you've been thinking about in this period? Sure. I mean, it's really been a chance to think about who we are as an institution and maybe what our special strengths are, especially as we're faced with all kinds of new challenges stemming from this situation. And I think at the end, I have kind of arrived at this idea that, you know, one thing we've worked really hard to overcome is this... um, you know, we're, we're a relatively new institution, right? We're th- by Western standards, we're 13 years old. Uh, we've spent a lot of time trying to build up different systems to do things more professionally. Um, and and we're, we're seen as a kind of leader in that way, certainly here in China. Um, but, but, you know, honestly, we've now been faced with a situation where our whole spring and summer and fall program is, is not going to happen as planned. Uh, and but we were instead able to come up with an entirely new exhibition with which we'll reopen uh, god willing at the end of next month um so somehow that agility and that improvisational spirit um end up being strengths rather than than weaknesses tell me something about those plans because um obviously one of the key things is international air travel is down Uh, international movement on the whole is down so what have you done in terms of this new show then that you and what did you have in place before that you've had to cancel so the show is called meditations in an emergency which is an homage to um, a book of poems written by frank o'hara the mid-century american poet who's actually better known during his lifetime as a moma curator um and i mean that the relevance of the name is pretty immediate but um we've tried to take this situation that we're now all faced with and look at it from a number of different angles. So it's a group show of somewhere around 30 artists. Many are 
Chinese voices established and emerging, but many others are international who are participating, you know, not by coming with studio teams and not by making huge shipments towards China because those things are impossible. But, you know, in this organizational process, which has really only been a few weeks long, um, we sort of started from this idea that, you know, certain things that we took for granted before are no longer possible, but also that there's a, probably a willingness, certainly from our public, but I think around the world as well, to see what a show might look like under these new circumstances. So people have been able, ready to work with us uh, given these these circumstances, whether that means letting us install a video work that maybe, you know, under ideal circumstances would require a technician coming or even in, in one or two cases producing work here uh, based on proposals and instructions and, and, and specs. Um, the end result will hopefully be an exhibition that opens while most of the museums around the world are, are still not able to do that. And that hopefully, um, you know, will bring our visitors back into the fold, but also will provide a, a nice signal to, to people elsewhere that, this isn't going to last forever. Indeed. So in terms of the uh, the sort of security situation and the social distancing situation, can you explain how you're going to manage all that? Because, of course, this isn't going to be like the museum was before before you closed. You, you, you're in, we're into a new era. Absolutely. Um, and I think one thing to remember is that you know, different systems in different countries work in different ways. Um, in China, where this all began, mask wearing became universal almost immediately. Um, there was never a significant shortage of, of surgical masks. So, uh, And there was also this experience of SARS 17 years ago where, where, where this had all happened once before. So that kind of has been the case and remains the case now. There's also temperature taking and in fact data tracing uh you know you scan a code with your cell phone and it verifies that you've been in beijing for the last 14 days an incubation period um and that's that's par for the course really at anywhere you might go be that a restaurant or a store um, or any kind of public space even some streets uh some alleyways you know to enter there'll be someone from the neighborhood there you know collecting that information so we will we will do that in accordance with local and national regulations, um, but we'll try to do it in in such a way that still, you know, speaks to who we are. And then specifically in terms of the exhibition, of course, we've gotten rid of multi-touch surfaces, right? So there are no headphones to be worn by different people. And then the exhibition design is also such that it allows people to keep the appropriate distance from one another. Indeed. And one of the things about this is it seems to me that you've corralled a community, you know, um, the way that you're talking about the way this show has been put together. And it seems to me that that um, one of the things that has emerged from this period is there's there's a greater sense of weirdly, given that we're all isolated, a greater sense of communication in our local communities and within within our, if you like, amongst our peers. Is Is that is that true of your experience? And is it something that can be used not just now, but in the future as a kind of, you know, a kind of blueprint for how we go forward from this? You know, it's it's definitely made clear the importance of art in helping us to envision uh, kind of forms of solidarity. Um, for, for us, the, probably the most cathartic moment of this whole process so far was on February 29th, um, which was really kind of the, the end of the most intense period of this in, in China, is just as things were coming into order. And I don't know, the end was starting to maybe be a little bit in sight. We hosted this online concert uh, with, you know, eight different musicians all stuck at home um, improvising. Um, and it was, a, it was actually grew, grew out of show, the show that we had on view uh, called Voluntary Garden, which we had to close when the museum closed. Um, but what was kind of fascinating was just this idea of, so I think we had about 100,000 visitors all over China sitting at home together, right? Sort of uh, in the words of uh, we have, a show we had last year, there was a section called Alone Together. Um, and this, uh, this, this chance to kind of convene and commune, not just virtually or digitally, but sort of 
still in the same in the same time, albeit in these different places, um, is is something quite unknown before. And of course, it's something that we'll have to continue in the, into the future because. You know, um, we don't yet know when other parts of the world are going. You know, we've had some museums in Germany this week opening, for instance, but it looks like the US and the UK, for instance, are not going to uh, be opening up for quite a few weeks yet. So, you know, are you envisaging that this kind of, um, on the one hand, local, but also more improvised kind of approach to formulating a program is is sort of the future for the foreseeable future. I think it's going to have to be, um, and I, and and you know, we spent so much time in the in the last year or two thinking about how to voluntarily reduce our carbon footprints, and you know, these these kinds of also very urgent issues uh, that this kind of new localism or regionalism sort of brought on by these more difficult circumstances uh, is is actually responsible. And I, I think it also allows us to, you know, to get back to the city and, and the artistic community at our doorstep in a, in a way that hopefully will be quite productive. And is it right that you've got a sort of preemptive moment before you open the show where you're sort of welcoming back visitors to the museum as a sort of public space before the art actually goes back on view so in fact today uh, we opened our front door for for the first time um, since january 24th when we when we when we closed for all of this um, uh, we opened it to uh, it's a campaign we're we're running right now we're calling empty ucca so we we don't have any art on view we we just have in our great hall our sort of signature 1800 square meter um, column free space. We have a, a few stacks of construction materials that are there ready to be incorporated into the the, the, the coming show. We, we tend to recycle elements from our walls. Um, but yeah, we just wanted to open the door and get people in. We have this hashtag MTUCC on our main wall uh, at the entrance. Um, and it's just a way, I mean, it's a dry run for us to test these kind of um, protocols that we're going to need to have in place when we when we do reopen with the show but it's also just to send a signal you know to to our members to the 798 um, art district where we're situated to the city a bit more broadly and to people elsewhere uh that that we're here that we're back and that we're excited to 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 re-engage and and to you know try new things and alongside that excitement is there any sense of trepidation also because it is it is a new era that we're entering into isn't it Oh, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, time will tell, right, when this when this podcast airs, if <laughs> if the show has opened as scheduled, uh, because I think that the, the most important lesson that we've learned is is that um, all the plans we make are, are subject to kind of whims much greater than any of us. Lastly, you are in a way a blueprint for what happens to the rest of the world because as i say you know we're some weeks off other museums elsewhere opening um are you in touch with the your international friends at museums across the world and do you do you feel in a way that you will you know you'll be a key kind of um test for for how we all as a museum community as an art community emerge from this crisis absolutely i i mean i i'll get emails i think a lot of uh Museum professionals in here and uh, elsewhere in Asia are, will, will, you know, be in, in close touch with colleagues in Europe and the U.S. and elsewhere. Um, I was on a, a Zoom call last Friday with kind of all of the museum directors of New York, and I was there with Suhanya Raffel from M Plus and uh, Eugene Tan from the National Art Gallery uh, Singapore. Um, Suhanya and Eugene, who are board members of CMOM, have actually. Uh, gone so far as to put together a, a set of specific social distancing guidelines for museums that are now being circulated more broadly. Um, so I, I think, you know, paradoxically, it's actually forcing us all or enticing us all to talk more to each other and, uh, and learn from each other. And that's that's exciting. Philip, thank you so much for talking to us today and good luck with it all. And um, we look forward to hopefully, definitely opening the doors and welcoming lots of visitors back. 
Thank you so much. And finally this week, the latest in our series Lonely Works, in which we look at artworks in museums that have closed because of the coronavirus. This week, we're returning to the Met, because the British artist Mark Wallinger has chosen Jackson Pollock's Autumn Rhythm, number 30, from 1950, one of the great drip paintings Pollock made in a prolific period between 1948 and 1951. And you can see images of the work as we discuss it at theartnewspaper.com. Click on the podcast link on the homepage and look for this episode. So, Mark, why did you choose Autumn Rhythm by Pollock? Well, because of its initial impact on me, um, and its continuing impact when I go and revisit. But it, it's very much attached to my memory of the first time I ever went to New York in 1980. And MoMA had given over the, the entire building to a huge Picasso retrospective. So the kind of abstract expressionism that was one of the big draws of New York, a, a lot of that work had been moved to uh, the Brooklyn Museum but out the back of uh, Metropolitan Museum in in quite a an unpromising unpropitious kind of you know you go through various interim rooms and I think past the cafe and I still remember it, it might even have been displayed on a sort of uh, hessian covered kind of temporary walls you know um, and, and there it was you know and so I have a, a huge fondness for for, for that work and that moment and that was kind of one of the one of the most sat- completely satisfying experiences of looking at a work of art actually yeah was it was was the sort of rather sort of as you say sort of unlikely slightly disjointed experience of getting to it and then seeing it all part of it in a way because it's an enormous it's a it's an enormous painting isn't it it's, it's one of Pollock's biggest it is it is an enormous painting and yeah and I, I think I was probably de- dealing with my own fatigue and kind of consuming so much art in the metropolitan, you know, in the museum. And you kind of, that in itself is quite sh- shattering. And and then, yeah, with the last bit of energy left, I found myself in this space. And of course, it, it, it is its own kind of uh, zone and balm for all that came before it, you know. It's one, one other thing, I mean, it seems odd to talk about purity when it comes to Pollock. But it seems to me that Autumn Rhythm is, in a way, the purest of the paintings. It's, there's there's such finesse and elegance in those marks, isn't there? There is, there is. I mean, I think hearing about him, reading about him, looking at reproductions, and but but somehow in one's mind's eye, quite early on, you you have a sort of ideal Pollock, you know, and and quite often they don't quite match up to this <laughs> Ur Pollock, you know, and this is. This is an, an Ur Pollock. It, it does everything that you ever hoped it would do. Yeah, it, 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 it has nothing, nothing imposed upon it. You know, blue poles, one or two of the other things, you know, it's, that, that's a kind of, um, those feel a little bit too much of an imposition. And this is, this is it, at, yeah, as you say, at, at its purest. And, and, and that actually kind of conforms to kind of the statements that he, uh, he made about what he hoped and intended. Yeah. works to do and and, and that the, the, the painting has a life of its own and that he's obeying that sense and and he yeah it, it's it's an extraordinarily moving experience actually yeah yeah and uh, had you seen the Namoth film of him making autumn rhythm before you saw the picture so were you in a way were you invested in the myth of Pollock before you had this encounter with the work yeah I mean it, it I think I think I saw that film on on foundation course um and so, you you know, you have that myth and, and you kind of, I think everyone, certainly my generation, had a go at uh, drip painting, you know, just, and, <laughs> and uh, uh, the results are generally horrible, you know, and it's, <laughs> and everything about that moment, you know, because, you know, his painting up to then could be pretty turgid, really, you know, and so it was like in one bound he was free and, and, you know, inspiration, revelation, epiphany, everything in those terms come, comes together. Um, and just that, that move from the ground up onto the wall. I mean, this is, a, yeah, it's like a physical and metaphysical shift. And it's, there are no other paintings that, that do that. And, and so, and so it's, it's rhythms and it's Elan is as much to do with, you know, between, Pollock's gesture and what gravity and everything else 
adds to those movements. It, it, it's a perfect summation, really. Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, it came to the Tate in 1999 for as part of that extraordinary Jackson Pollock exhibition. I wonder, do you remember seeing it in that show? And did it, you know, in a way you've seen it in this space in the Met, as you say, you revisited it, but seeing it in your own, on your own turf, as it were. I mean, I wonder, wonder what, what that experience was like. It was wonderful, but actually I suppose I'm quite attached to, to, <laughs> to where it is, you know? I mean, I suppose one thinks of the National Gallery and the Tate in similar terms to the Met and, and, and MoMA, you know, and there's that uh, funny bit somewhere at the end of her post-impressionism, beginning of cubism, that, that, that is somewhere betwixt and between uh, their, their remits, you know? And so, yeah, because it feels more the only one of its kind, <laughs> of its species, you know, within that, yeah, the natural history of painting in, the, in that place, then, then I, I suppose I like to think of it there. Yeah, I mean, and that speaks to what the reason that we're doing this, because all these museums are currently shut, you know, um, and we want to, in a way, bring people's minds and eyes back to these paintings and thinking about this. And it is crucial, isn't it? The space in which a work sits and one's memories of a work have are, are so bound up with the physical experiences of visiting them, not just looking at them. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I remember another time I was staying with some friends in Canal Street, this was early 90s, and uh, I decided I was going to walk all the way to, to the Met, and I, <laughs> I'd got some new sandals, which were kind of shredding my feet by the time I got to, <laughs> to Central Park. So it really was a very painful pilgrimage. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it was still worth it, you know. Did you feel like you were on the on the road to Santiago? Yes, something like that, yeah. <laughs> fantastic. Mark, thanks so much for talking to us about this work. Thank you. You can find out more about Autumn Rhythm at metmuseum.org. And you can see the latest work by Mark Wallinger, A Response to London Under Lockdown, on the front page of the May edition of The Art Newspaper, which is out next week. And that's it for this week. You can subscribe to The Art Newspaper at theartnewspaper.com, click on the subscribe link at the top left of the homepage, and please subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already, and do give us a rating or review if you've enjoyed it. You can also find us on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook, Instagram and Telegram. You can find the Telegram invite code at the top of our daily newsletters. The producers of The Week in Art are Julie Mihauska, Amy Dawson and David Clack, and David also does the editing. Thanks to Francis, to Dan, to Philip and to Mark, and thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Goodbye for now. The Week in Art is brought to you in association with Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.